वंस अगेन वेलकम टू यू ऑल सो वी हैव डॉक्टर आलोक पांडे जी आई हैव ऑलरेडी गिवन एन स्मॉल इंट्रोडक्शन अबाउट हिम राइट इन द बिगिनिंग सो आई इन्वाइट हिम हियर टू स्पीक ऑन श्रीअरबिंदोज इंटीग्रल योगा डॉक्टर आलोक पांडे जी इन वन ऑफ हिज पोयम्स श्रीअरबिंदो कंपेयर्स दोल ऑफ मैन विद ए ट्री वेरी शॉर्ट पोयम He writes a tree beside the sandy river beach, holding its topmost boughs like fingers to the heaven they cannot reach. This is the soul of man, his body and brain, hungry for earth, his heavenly flight detain. This is uh, one of the. problems perhaps the biggest problem that man experiences in his brief sojourn upon earth animals live in groups of habit submerged by matter asana mrityu as it's called they are happy with the way they are and the gods are happy in their house of splendor they believe they need nothing there is no struggle there is no suffering there is no pain and therefore there is no spur for evolution or going beyond themselves but man of all the creatures experiences a pull a tug as it were on one side his one leg rooted in animality on the other side his head held high looking towards the sky towards the heaven so much so that perhaps it's not insignificant that the word used to describe one of the words used to describe man purusha is also the word used to describe the one the one being the purusha whose head is of fire an infinite fire whereas his feet are rooted upon earth padabhyam prithvi and since man has become conscious of himself and of the life around him his search has been to discover the integrating principle how to lead a life where there is a balance of earth and the heaven sometimes the balance has tilted towards this side and he has lost himself in the mud of earth nature at times he has taken a flight into the beyond forgotten earth forgotten life forgotten creation flinging himself in the arms of the creator and his interminable delight yet most of mankind wants to find some way that they can integrate the two and i think vedas are the earliest documents where we see this effort at synthesis a synthesis of life here and a life which is beyond and that's what makes them beautiful they are not a book written and finished because the vedas are infinite their source is infinite and how can the infinite ever be written completely or uttered fully by any or many human tongues so vedas are something which continue to be explored discovered and renewed and that's the beauty of the vedas that they have carried on its it's an approach towards the infinite i wouldn't even say an approach towards life it's an approach towards the infinite and where is the beginning and where is the end they are the first documents which as if reveal these secrets in a flashlight leaving the centuries to explore it in their own unique ways so it's an effort at synthesizing these two the eternal veda the bud of knowledge is not confined to a book it is written in the heart of creation it is written in the stones it is written in the minerals it's written in the plants it's there in the seas the skies the river the gods the titans and above all the soul of man there resides there dwells the veda in fact in a certain sense all life is an unfolding of this veda shubhendra beautifully says in the synthesis the scripture of the eternal of the integral yoga is the supreme shastra of the integral yoga is the eternal veda secret in the heart of every 
thinking and living being. And it opens, it's like a bud, it opens. It opens through experiences of life, it opens through every little touch from the beyond, from around us. And as it opens, man becomes enamored more and more of the eternal. And the more he is enamored of the eternal, the more swiftly this bud begins to open. And the eternal Veda, which is the secret knowledge hidden in man's own deepest uh, being, that begins to unfold itself and reveal itself. So Vedas, what we call as Vedas, were the first effort of man to reconcile this paradox of human life, this enigma, which we confront day and night. And that enigma is that on one side there is in us the secret sense of immortality. On the other side, we see everywhere a dance of death, beautifully conjured in a small little Indian story, often interpreted in a very Mayavadic sense, but it is a very affirming story. And the story is about Yudhishthir when he has answered all the questions posed to him by his own father incognito, uh, who comes as Yaksha. And it's a way that he prepares Yudhishthir for his great mission. It is his way of preparing his child. So he asks him one after another. It's like revealing the knowledge to him. And Yudhishthir answers. This was the method used in the Vedic times. So he asks a final question. Tell me, which is the most surprising thing? Kim Asharya. And Yudhishthir says the most surprising is that every day we see death around us. And yet we believe we are immortal. The story is interpreted by the Mayavadins in one way. There is no real immortality. There is only transience. The other way is that despite the dance of death, we have the sense of immortality in us. And this immortality affirms its tread on each and every circumstance of life. That's why when we say we had this program, that's at so and so time, we are going to have this program. And whoever asked everyone, everyone said, yes, yes, tomorrow or day after tomorrow at this time. Would we be sure? And yet we are sure. This is the interesting paradox of life. We believe, we trust. We trust immortality more than death. And so the Vedic Rishis took this trust as a hint, an intuition as it were, inbuilt in life. And taking this little ray of hope, they started assenting towards the home of immortality. Where does this intuition come in man? Wherefore, this quest is born in us. And they found a path. And this path was a very fascinating path. A path of ascension through the zigzag of the gods. One god after another. Varuna and Mitra preparing us towards vastness, harmony, love, sweetness. And Ariman battling against all the forces that oppose our ascension. And Bhag preparing us for the delight and eventually the house of truth, Surya, who himself pours the nectar of immortality, Soma, and makes us experience the delight of immortality. It's an amazing, wonderful journey where the soul of man becomes, sometimes is visualized as a bird uh, ascending between two firmaments. One, the physical and mental. On the other side, the higher firmaments. And at other times, it's visualized as a warrior battling against all that is dark, opposes its journey. The Valas, the Vritras, the Panis, the Dasyus and many other names. And this is surely not a book written long back. It is as relevant today. It's so true. It is to be lived and experienced. And every person who undertakes an inner life experiences it. He experiences the wealth of the gods. He experiences the outpourings of the horse of Indra dripping with Gritam. It's an experience which enriches, illumines our mind. He experiences the swift flowing of the Maruts. He experiences the touch of the Ashwins bringing us fitness and health and vitality to do God's work in the world. This is as much a fact today as it was yesterday and will be as much a fact tomorrow. So the Vedic Rishis laid these broad foundations. The mother says they were involutionary beings. They came to set into motion the great truth which is already inbuilt in creation, which will unfold, giving man a law by which to live. 
but as happens over a period of time the book became more important than the truth the rituals become more important than the spirit behind it so beautifully conjured in the story of sati now it is lovely serial is coming mahadev and sati the swam body is the spirit of truth and prajapati not the prajapati of the vedic lore but the prajapati of the puranas who has built lot of laws he has created lot of laws rituals ways of life daksha sahita as it is called by which man must live and sati is in love with the boundless with the absolute with the infinite with the immortal shiva himself and this love is one effort at reconciling shiva's touch is dangerous it breaks all the notions all the trappings all the limitations of the world of prajapati and therefore he can't bear it immortality bears ill the eternal touch shubhendra says so it's a story where a whole civilization which is built along a very ritualistic way of looking at life breaks down and daksh dies the yagna is destroyed it's a wonderful story but what is the ultimate outcome does the quest die no sati does not die she is reborn and she is reborn as parvati a conscious being who from very birth is ascending parvati is the daughter of himalayas the peaks of earth nature she is born on the peaks of earth nature she is a born tapaswini and she prepares and becomes ready to mate with the infinite so it's an amazing story where the spirit never dies the spirit of the vedas continues to live so many times so many interpretations good bad right wrong it's not really important because it's something which is inbuilt ingrained we are programmed to use a you know modern language so this was one effort and then this veda began to flow out in countless streams the tantras which at some point were regarded as non vedic later came to be accepted as vedic agam shastra because one discovered yes the roots are there where are, where is the divine mother the mother of the gods she is there in the vedas and from there the roots of tantra where one discovered that no he is not just the purusha but he is also the shakti that has gone into this creation pragya prasuto purano the ancient wisdom and that is the knowledge which is there within the heart of creation so it was a wonderful new outpouring new outflowing though of course uh, historically there were fights and quarrels human beings love to fight and if there is nobody else they have a fight inside and that gets reflected outside so let's not go into that part of the history but the fact is that this too was an outpouring and yet as humanity advances new things come up new discoveries new ways of looking at life new challenges new problems new issues and hence the synthesis has to be once again done and of course humanity gets lost in the mechanical understanding of the truth so the third attempt at synthesis we see is in the gita where once again shri krishna it's amazing in the dance of death all around the song of immortality is given it's an amazing scripture that way its whole setting is so mesmerizing one cannot imagine that a scripture is given of such great relevance and truth not in a quiet ashrama or in a mountain paradise it's given on the battlefield and it's so true there are real stories even in war where people have lived the gita it was one attempt to synthesize even the ghor karma because generally when we turn to tradition after a time there comes a divide there are some karmas which uh, will help us in the great ascension but there are some karmas which don't help us they have to be kept away so there are ghor karmas battle killing it's a ghor karma how can this karma even help us remotely in ascension because this is the eventual journey this is the eventual challenge and shri krishna presents that well not only is this battle within but there is also this battle which is outside and even this karma ghoram karmam as arjuna says that this is my problem that all that you say is wonderful but do you know what karma you are asking me to do so krishna says of course that well 
I have done all the karmas and I can tell you by experience that you can be free even while engaged in ghor karma. And there is a path, there is a way. Of course, the Gita adds the bhakti that is only hinted in the Vedas. Krishna brings it to the forefront. Both it's there in the Gita. Uh, Gita, of course, lifts it to sublime heights. And of course, in the lore of Sri Krishna in the Vrindavan and Bhagavad, we see that bhakti element which is in the Vedas and the Upanishads hinted. When the Rishi says, my submission to the fire, that sense of surrender, he is basically referring to bhakti. But in the Gita, it comes absolutely like a vast sea rushing on the soul from every side. So this is one synthesis. But life doesn't stop. As the Veda unfolds itself through the Vedic lore, through Upanishads, through Tantra and the Gita, new challenges come in. There are new discoveries. There are new problems, new enigmas. Mankind advances materially and psychically. The age of individualism comes. Reason arrives at its acme. Matter is analyzed to its very darkest depths. Its depths are sounded. The atomic energy unveiled. So we need a new synthesis. All this new discovery has to be once again assimilated by the Vedic light, into the Vedic light and given a fresh understanding, integrated and lived in the light of the Vedic truth. And that is where we see the great work of Shurabindo. There are many other things, of course, besides. But all that transpired between, let's say, the time of the Gita and today, there were questions which Arjuna did not ask or could not ask, which the modern mind is bound to raise. And Shurabindo anticipates these. He takes them up. He gives an importance to matter, which is amazing. Matter is not to be rejected. This is there in the Vedas. But over a period of time, uh, the tendency towards otherworldliness comes. It's understandable. Because as the human soul ascends, its first touches and glimpses of the infinite are so intoxicating, mesmerizing, that who would want after that to really roll in the mud of earth nature? There is a natural tendency to withdraw. Shubindu says that even he experienced the truth of the Mayavad in his early days, when suddenly the whole city appeared like a floating speck, vanishing like a cinema and shadow before his eyes. While walking casually on the seat of Suleiman, Takte Suleiman, seat of Solomon, he experienced the vacant infinite. And it's very alluring. As long as we don't, we have not glimpsed it, it's still something vague, absolute, intellectualized philosophy. But one touch of it, and we are just bowled over, or rolled over, or drowned in it. And then to get back to this earth and its harsh realities, painful reality, its struggle of everyday existence, is as if a sharp contrast to this inner beatitude. And yet, if that is not done, life on earth will always remain ultimately in the last analysis a vanity of vanities, a bad dream from which we wake up. But that's not what the Vedic truth is about. It's taking the challenge of life head on. And if it is not, if it is full of darkness, all the more reason, as Shobindo puts it, that if this field of life is dark, all the more reason that children of light and immortality should hurl themselves into it. So we normally give the reverse logic. Oh, this is dark. And therefore, we must escape into the light. On the contrary, we should say, Oh, this is dark. Therefore, we carrying the light within us, plunge into it. Beautifully given in one of Shurabindo's poems, The Pilgrim of the Night. We have heard about Pilgrim of Light. Pilgrims are always those who go towards light. Asadoma sadgamya tamsoma jyotirgamya mrityorma amritam gamya. But what is this pilgrim of the night? And there he says so beautifully, I made an assignation with the night. In the abyss was fixed our rendezvous. Carrying in my heart God's deathless light. I came her dark and dangerous heart to woe. This is something unprecedented. Night is frightening. 
it's full of uh, shadows darkness and in the vedic lore indra comes to help the aspiring soul and what does he do he destroys vritra the mighty serpent which encircles around the city he destroys vala pani and yet they come up again and again like a hydra's head they are reborn 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 a few escape but the rest strive on and fail so why this is so what is this shadow which every time it is destroyed it comes up again we have ravana and kansa and many others the, i mean the mahabharata is regarded as a fifth veda because the same truths are there in the ramayana and the mahabharata but given in a form which is so much easy and palatable to the human mind and yet they crop up again and again so is there a solution other than finding a door of escape into the beyond can we really reconcile this and the solution that shirbindo gives which is hinted in the vedas is transformation what really does it mean it simply means that all life all creation is essentially nothing else but a distorted representation of something which is true therein comes the mighty vakya of shirbindo in shirbindo upanishad brahm satyam namithya jagat satyam namithya as he says in savitri it is a dream fact vision of truth it doesn't mean that the world as it is in its appearance is true one has to be really of one set to believe it but definitely it is the distortion of a truth and a distortion can be corrected if it was something which was came up sprung up by itself there is no chance no hope but it's a shadow of some reality there is a hope of this distortion being corrected in the veda there is a beautiful hint when the fire is invoked the rishi says make the crooked straight doesn't say burn it down to ashes make the crooked straight may we think that aspire towards the right and the light ritam satyam vratam so this effort shobindo brings to the forefront and makes it the very goal of the yoga which means no more the old door of escape into the beyond like the purusha himself our feet well grounded upon earth even there is a beautiful vedic imagery about the swan whose one feet is upon earth and the other is in the heaven and if it were to lift up both feet it would vanish so this double effort on one side the perfection of the soul it's full blossoming assimilating all these splendors and riches of the beyond the light the might the strength the truth the bliss the peace all that is not found in this life to get those riches inner splendor which the rishis aspired for cows and horses go light gomati a luminous mentality horses ashwa the fire the force the power of truth to aspire for all that and accumulate them in the soul but for what purposes not merely to use them to escape but to hurl ourselves upon the world with all this as the inner riches to hurl ourselves upon matter this material life its manifold relation that is the real challenge of yoga the real challenge of reconcile these two escape into the beyond is an individual phenomena we can cut off all other things which are connected with creation in fact if that be the goal then surely that is the best way but transformation means accepting life upon earth which means accepting all the manifold hues and colors and shades of our variegated life all the relationships with human beings with plant with animals with the sun the moon everything and to accept it in grim earnest to bear it like a cross upon our shoulders and yet continue to walk it's a much heavy burden to start with but as we move on because naturally in this yoga one has to accept it it cannot be rejected and when we accept it and start it's looks like a heavy burden
Shubindu says that in this yoga, in the beginning, it looks like, oh, it's very difficult. And that's why many people even find Shurabindu's writings difficult. Forget about the yoga. Though actually it is very easy. Very easy because it's not philosophy. It's everyday life experienced from the highest standpoint. Really it's an intimate psychology. And as one reads it with that quest, that yes, this is my aspiration, then the pages open and reveal from behind the words the light that is inscribed behind them. That's how the Vedic Rishis were mantra drishtas. They saw the mantras written in the ether and received them in their soul. The soul reads it, the soul sees it. For the mind, yes, it's mind-boggling literally. But for the soul, it's simple, straight, direct, touching the root of the problem. When we read the synthesis, straight from the beginning, he takes up the problem in real earnest and he starts with the world panorama as if the Lord is showing us a vast cosmic television. And he says all the world tendencies, the world presents such an image where all the world's tendencies and forces are put in a cauldron of media. The Greek magician, uh, sorceress. And they are being put so that either they will burn away or they will survive after purification. So here also in this yoga, all these things, all our diverse tendencies and uh, habits of nature and ways of being, our living, all with all the countless imperfections, shades of darkness are put in the huge cauldron, but not of just media, but of the Mother Divine. So this is something very, very interesting that Shubindu brings out. For the first time we have in the history of, spiritual history of earth, the avatar puts the shakti in front and steps behind. Avatars have always come with shakti. But Radha is left in Vrindavan because the earth is not ready for the divine love. Sita goes back into the earth because the world is not ready for the divine marriage between the soul and earth nature. Man doubts her purity because it has been usurped by the Asura. Buddha comes and he has to leave behind. He has to forget Sujata, whose hint shows him the path, the luminous path. Something which even the great sages could not tell him. He is struggling for years and there comes the Divine Mother and tells him, don't keep the bow so tense that it snaps, nor so lax that it cannot you know, shoot an arrow. And Buddha knows, who else is she? But the Divine Mother who comes and goes away. Because his path is a path which in that context is important. Madonna comes, Magdalene, and she has to be relegated to the background. Humanity cannot accept that Christ the Avatar can be guided by the Divine Mother herself. This has been the history of earth. And yet when Shobindo comes, he puts the mother in front because now it is time for a new creation. Let a new word be spoken from the heights and one great act unlock the doors of fate. All this to be put in her huge cauldron, not just individually. That was still easy. A yoga of escape, of nirvana, of moksha, can be an individual yoga. In fact, by its very nature, it's an individual yoga. It starts with collectivity, but ends with an individual. But this yoga, by its very nature, is collective yoga. If transformation of life upon earth has to be there, we have to accept all our fellow beings, whether we like them or don't like them, good, bad, ugly, everything together. We become part of one great ship of King Satyavrat, of the Pralaya fame where all the samples are put in a ship and they are to cross over to the next stage. So here also, there are several challenges that one has to take up in this yoga because transformation is not an individual process. Sri and the mother at the very beginning because even if an individual was to transform himself, he would be a freak. <laughs> to start with, it's impossible because it would not be a change of the law of earth nature. It would be a superimposition of another law. Like... Somebody can keep nowadays doctors, I am a doctor by profession, so they can prolong life for months 
some people are in coma for years and they are living it's because something else has been superimposed a power of matter which is different and it can help prolong life similarly yogis are known to superimpose the pran tatva the power of life and prolong life shobindo recounts an incidents where he met swami brahmanand of chandod there are many similar names not of sri ramakrishna mat who was himself a great yogi but of chandod and it was said that he was more than 200 years old that he had fought the battle of he was there even during the battle of palasi and he is there and he would hardly open his eyes and when shubhendu went he opened his eyes now those possibilities are there but they are not transformation they are superimposition of a higher law onto a lesser law it's like encapsulating a body and preserving it in a con- controlled environment but in this yoga it cannot be by its nature a controlled environment everything life is conterminous with every other life we are not cut off into separate segments we believe it but one of the first things that we discover when we enter into the path of yoga is the truth of oneness and it hits hard we discover that yes indeed it is the one with many mass we may not like a person but he is still the one even in rags i am divine that's how shubhendu puts in one of the stories also there in some very interesting sufi experiences yaar ko humne ja baja dekha kabhi zahir kabhi chipa dekha i am seeing my beloved here and there everywhere sometimes hidden sometimes he is in front so this state of the one oneness immediately we awaken to a consciousness that all these seemings of separateness is a play this oneness is a deeper truth but holding this oneness one has to start rediscovering the pattern of life the dharma the sanatan dharma the sanatan dharma is built on oneness on yagna the yagna comes because there is oneness if there is no oneness there is no yagna by its nature life is one and therefore regardless of whatever efforts we may do the results will be based on the collectivity i may do some effort but somebody else may reap the reward i may put in efforts but somebody else may succeed and equally somebody else is doing effort but i am succeeding because the prashadam which is given the um, the gift of the yagna is not just to few of course those who do directly the yagna become recipient of special gifts but it is given to all in a typical yagna there is the hota the priest and there are others the head priest and the other priest and the sacrifice is being performed and at the end of sacrifice there are people who are watching they are just silent participants and when the yagna is over they all get something or the other this is collective yoga that some do the yoga and the gifts come to whole earth and entire mankind that's why very often people ask that why in shubhendra ashram we don't have free hospitals free dispensaries well we have something which is free and that is light and delight but it's unfortunately <laughs> not valued <laughs> free peace walk into the ashram no money as no special darshan no deluxe darshan and you know everything is free probably too free to be believed too good to be true and yet we walk samadhi so unimposingly many people take their chappals right very close and they walk in not knowing what's going to hit them so this is the real gift freedom from ignorance but not just for one or two and it has a ripple effect everyone who is engaged in this yoga knowingly or unknowingly consciously or unconsciously helps everyone else mother used to say win your little victories your little victories will become milestones for the earth it's a quiet little victory trying to conquer greed for one rasgulla sweet meat one person tries it and suddenly many persons begin to feel oh after all it's not such a big deal to get rid of sweets it's amazing this is one dimension of this yoga collective yoga so in the beginning it appears like a big burden because here we don't walk alone even if we think we are walking alone we are not alone because it's not a truth of life and creation that we are alone it's an illusion of 
created by nature for a certain purpose. We are never alone. We are always surrounded by the one and that one is infinite. He holds within himself everything. So how can one be alone? So as we walk slowly to start with this, but the way very simple. All that we have to do is to keep unburdening. And as we unburden to whom? The Divine Mother is there to receive us. And as we grow in consciousness, she becomes vaster and vaster and vaster. She who was in the beginning came to us simply a giver of some small boons. People go and approach the Divine Mother for their joint pains and you know for relief from fever and she says fine. This is the starting point. And then we begin to offer our inner tendencies and habits. And then we begin to offer all the contamination and contagion. Then we begin to offer all those who are connected with us. Every little object of life, the water that we drink and we bathe in, the toothpaste with which we brush our teeth, the food we eat, the bed on which we sleep, the pillow, and slowly everything begins to become one vast offering. It is like a volcanic fire which begins to rage and burn down every impurity. It's a new kind of relation with life. To start with, everything was meant for us. Creation for us, people for us, God for us, yoga for myself. It's after all, I have to find my own mukti. And then a point comes where we begin to discover, no, me for God, creation for God, he for God, she for God, creation for God, everything that I do for God and for God alone. It's a complete change of orientation. Nothing is left, yet everything is newly discovered. Beautifully conjured in one of the stories of the Upanishads, which Shobindo refers to, in the synthesis of yoga when he talks about the ascent of the sacrifice of the yagna is the story of yagnavalk he had katyayani and matre and katyayani uh, when he was to go for a kind of intense sadhana he divided his property equally between katyayani and matre so katyayani says yes is fine for me fine with me i don't doubt you whatever you have done is perfect and Matri says, what will I do with this property? You give me that which is so dear to you that you are able to just part with this property just like that and go away. So he says, uh, he tries to, you know, dilly-dally, Matri, it's not such a simple, uh, you know, yogic knowledge. No, no, give me a hint, a clue. Give me some hint so that I can live the rest of my life with that knowledge. Uh, he still dilly-dallies. Then Maitri asks a direct question. Tell me, you know, sometimes we ask this question, do you love me? So he says, she puts it indirectly. She says, why does a man love a woman? Why does a man love his children? Why does a man love his country? Why does someone love this creation and its different elements? So now, young Valk has to spill out the beans, the secret of his life. You know, he's the uh, the Isha Upanishad is attributed to this great Rishi and he says Matre, one does not love the wife for the sake of the wife but for the sake of the self one does not love the child for the sake of the child but for the sake of the self one does not love the country for the sake of the country but for the sake of the self and so on and so forth now the beauty of this story is you know, it's often interpreted that, yes, it's an egoistic love. Therefore, you have to abandon everything. But Shurabindo gives this story a beautiful uh, inner turn. He says, as long as we are in the lower nature, as long as we are leading an egoistic life, our love is also egoistic. And we love people for the sake of our ego. They are mine. And the moment this mine changes... The person who, whom we loved, even children, towards whom we love, you know, human beings have a natural love. All creation, because it's the shadow of the love of the Divine Mother herself for creation. It's the most intense love, deepest love. And yet when children reject their parents, this love begins to change into something acrid, bit bitter, not very good taste. 
but there is another kind of love and shobindo says if we can love them for the sake of the lesser self with a small s or when we have discovered the greater self this love also changes its quality we love people we love creation we love everything for the sake of the greater self because they too are the divine manifesting and relation changes and we begin to lead a truly vedic life the life of the vedic sages where they discovered the oneness the interconnectedness of this entire creation they discovered the warp and woof of existence now this does not mean only a sentimental kind of uh, rosy love no it's a very powerful love the love of mahakali which can destroy creation if need be and yet it is love the love of krishna which declares on the battlefield of kurukshetra that the one who loves the lord has maitri and karuna in him and o arjuna with all the compassion in your heart and if you truly have compassion lift your bow and fight this great battle it's an amazing paradox can we fight with all the love and compassion in our heart yes because we have to destroy the forms the truth is never destroyed when certain forms whether individual or collective or civilizational they become petrified obstinately standing in the way of light and truth they must go and someone has to do this job of cleaning the dirty linen whether publicly or otherwise in this yoga we clean this linen inside it's a process of purification and who purifies us in the vedas we have these seven streams ila mahi saraswati sarma and countless names in the puranas we have ganga yamuna all these are streams which come and purify us and here we have the origin of all streams the divine mother herself and the more we offer something after all this is what yoga is about bringing the lower in contact with the higher the vedic rishis used to rub the two pieces of wood keeping one on top and the other below and they would prepare the place make it clean this cleaning of the place is the purification and the rubbing the two woods placed in this way is the lower nature and the higher nature and when they are brought in contact with each other a fire is lit not only in our soul but also in the different parts of our nature so in shobindo's yoga it's not just the soul escaping from the clutches of nature but carrying nature in its ascension the mind assailed by the fire of the heavens tow towers further and further further and further the heart ablaze with the divine love experiencing the sweetness of the divine it begins to grow wide and wide and lets its sweetness reach out to all like fragrance of a flower the vital in man the power of life the force of life no more cabined by the ego and the desire self it begins to grow vast in its effort otherwise our life is cabined in small efforts an average person's life is well me maybe my family at most maybe my state maybe my country and in the farthest reaches mankind poor animals and plants are excluded because it's after all mankind so we discover an alien who is going to attack mankind and we have to but that is a smallness when the vital the life impulse grows vast lit by the fire of yoga then nothing is small it's from the smallest elements right up to the gods the working involves everything and everybody and finally the body itself as the mother said salvation is physical it's not enough that we taste the nectar inside this of course is i'm sure an experience which at least some of us would have had been fortunate enough to have of tasting the inner nectar called in sikhism as amrit chakna it's an inner nectar it's not a you know something outside it is the nectar which flows from the feet of the lord that's what amrit is about the bliss the sweetness that come out of his heart and spill over into creation and when we taste it we discover the innate immortality but what about our material nature it is still predisposed to the same problem same issues and unless that changes life upon earth will never change 
So they took the real root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that matter refuses obstinately. It is where the bedrock of darkness lies. And matter itself under the grip of the subconscious nature, which doesn't allow it. Inner experiences we may have, wonderful experiences in trance, meditation, even while walking, remembering, doing japa, wonderful things can flow in. But when it comes to a problem with the eye or a problem with the heart, we look for a cardiologist and the Arvind Eye Hospital. This is our tragedy. And unless that changes, no fundamental change can abide upon earth. And the mother and Shubindo gave their life, their yoga, their tapasya, all their efforts to work upon this dimension. And that's why in this ashrama, we have playground which is compulsory, more compulsory than meditation. You have a full-fledged playground, but you won't find a place where it is written meditation hall, though there is of course a place which is regarded as a meditation hall where people go and meet. Meditation is everywhere, but playground is a special process. And why? Because this yoga we have to work on both the ends, not only on soul, but on nature. Nature must be ready to receive the flame, the fire, the light, otherwise it will break down. Beautifully in Savitri, Shobindo reveals this when Ashupati is face to face with the Divine Mother and asks her to come down. O truth defended in thy secret son, O wisdom splendor, the eternal's artist bride, O bliss that ever dwellest, hid deep within, while men seek the outside and never find. What a ring of the Vedic lore is there in these lines. She says, tells Ashupati, that if this truth descends too soon, earth will break down. Man is too weak to bear the infinite's weight. What thou hast won is thine, but ask no more. Truth born too soon might break the imperfect earth. And yet, the boon is granted. Shubindu says at one place, the boon that we have asked from the Supreme is the most difficult of all boons. And yet the boon has been granted. This is what we talk about, the supramental descent on 29th February 1956. It's not an event to be celebrated every four years and forgotten. It is the birth of a new consciousness upon earth. And slowly but surely, it is beginning to mold life. And all the things that we see today, from the outrage that we experience over crimes and murders and the mistreatment of women, to an uprising of the youth, to an upsetting of the norms, all these and to a collective aspiration, to the fact that today here in this very hall, there are people from different countries who have gathered. All these are signs of an inner uprising, an uprising of the earth. I won't use the word revolt of earth. It's an uprising of the earth. Uprising of an earth towards a greater light, a greater truth. A truth which is no more cabined in sects, and sectarianism, a truth which goes beyond all religious dogmas, a truth which is at once individual and collective, a truth which is the ancient of the ancient and yet is the most newest of the new because the earth has not tasted it and experienced it. The Vedic Rishis glimpsed it and yet we must taste it. And this truth is bound to overrun. First it will break down many of the old patterns and norms of life. We see that today. A giant dance of Shiva toward the past. And yet, after that tearing of the past, Shubindu assures us, I saw the omnipotent flaming pioneers come crowding down the amber stairs of birth. Faces that wore a diviner, eyes approaching the eyes of a diviner man. Lips chanting an unknown anthem of the soul. Such children are coming with a new software inbuilt in them. Soon after 56, in 58, the mother gave an interesting message. Material nature has agreed to collaborate, which means every child that is born now is born with a chip, new chip. So it's no more a black sheep. We were the black sheep and white sheep are being born amidst us. And they are going to be the massive barrier breakers and wrestlers with destiny 
in their list of will. Their tread one day shall change this suffering earth and justify the light on nature's face. So this is just a very brief, uh, quick overview. It's an infinite Shabindas Yoga and to talk about it is to write Mahabharata of a Mahabharata because it's not a yoga which is, you know, I often use this analogy. There's a swimming pool yoga where there's a fixed method. You have to start from this end and go to the other end. And there is a trainer and there is a lifeguard. This is one, one way of yoga. And there is another yoga which is like the ocean yoga. However much you are taught about it, you have to take the plunge. And when you take the plunge, it is disorienting, mind you. I had this direct experience. So let me share one experience, very material experience. But because the Veda is everywhere, it taught, taught me a great truth about this yoga. So when I came here, I was enamored by the sea like many of us. But I didn't know sea swimming. And somebody dragged me there and sea is very simple. Oh, is it? Nothing. You have to just let yourself go and the sea will support you. I said, sure, it's as simple as that. Yes, yes, yes. So I went waist deep or chest deep. And I, in all sincerity, let myself go. And the next thing I remember is seeing the floor. And feeling, my God, this is my last moment on earth. <laughs> Gasping for breath. The story of Sri Ramakrishna flashed after I came out. That he said, when then also you remember the divine, then the divine will appear. I said, my God, I lost the moment. But it was my lesson in yoga. Truly of let go, surrender. Surrender to the divine mother. We will feel disoriented. We will feel sometimes emerging on the crest of high rising waves. Touching the moon within our grasp. Nearing the sea as if it's just next door. At other times we will feel the chill cold of the seabed. And after this waxing and waning we will grow into the perfect integer of the soul. The Vedic Rishi spoke of the night and the days. These are the nights when we touch those parts of a nature, of universal nature, which are cold and dry and barren, like the Sahara, perhaps Sahara is still cacti bloom and there are mirages, but these depths of nature seem to be as if they have nothing. And yet, if we can feel the divine presence there and the love sustaining us, we are once again uplifted upward. And the next moment we experience once again the far winging reaches of the spirit. And that makes this yoga amazingly wonderful, interesting and a fascinating journey of life, of creation, of earth towards the supreme. It's not, yoga is not done by man for the sake of man. This is another big error. It is, yoga is done by the divine for earth. So what is the role of man? He can become a catalyst in the process of yoga of earth. All evolutionary emergence of life is the result of a secret yoga. Sri Krishna says, I have been doing this yagna from the beginning. I gave this yoga to Surya Vivaswan. And Arjuna says, sir, please don't confuse me. How did you give to Surya? Because Surya is engaged in the yoga day and night. All life on earth is the result of action of this Surya. This is the original yoga. Shobindu brings back this original yoga. It is being done in earth. By whom? By the divine who is hidden inside matter. When darkness was dense and covered with darkness, he was seated within it, immense and alone. And in man, this process becomes conscious. So the subconscious yoga of nature, which is anyways going on, becomes a conscious yoga in man. This is our role. Man is a dynamo for God's work. Nature does most in him. God the highest, only his soul's consent is his own. So we have to give this consent. And the mother assures us, if there is a sincere yes in your hearts, the hour can be now. The hour of transformation. Thank you.
थैंक यू आलोक भाई फॉर दिस वेरी इंस्पायरिंग एनलाइटनिंग एंड इंसाइटफुल इंटरप्रिटेशन और इंसाइटफुल रिकॉन्साइलिंग ऑफ द वैदिक योगा एंड श्योर विंदोस इंटेग्रल योगा सो थैंक यू वंस अगेन एंड बिफोर वी क्लोज आई इन्वाइट माई कोलिग शिव कुमार टू एक्सटेंड द वोट ऑफ थैंक्स वी हैव हैड अ मोस्ट वंडरफुल इवनिंग टूडे विद थ्री ब्यूटिफुल स्पीकर्स कम हियर to share with us their life experience and it is a happy occasion for me to thank all of them initially when sampad introduced them he started with a beautiful statement that how vedas are the foundation of sanatana dharma and when dr david foley came to the podium he in fact explained to us how the things started from veda has now culminated in the beautiful integral vision of sherabindo in fact in his talk he had explained to us how his own journey started from the west but it did not take through the academic media but he approached the vedas directly and uh, during his exploration when he started expressing himself how it received the stamp of shri madhav pandit from sherbindo ashram which became a source of encouragement for him to further dwell into the deeper mysteries of the vedas in fact he explained to us some of the words key words of the vedas with their meanings and how we need to awaken the manu the divine word the surya the illuminator agni the divine will in us so that what remains as the inner veda is awakened and brought to the forefront and become our guide in this journey of light and he concluded with two beautiful remarks that this veda which is available to us is a heritage of the entire humanity it doesn't belong to one particular set or one particular group but it is a heritage that is left to us for the entire humanity and in order to grasp and own that veda ourselves the path is first trying to have or acquire that inner stillness and through that inner stillness how one can help the vedas to bloom within us and that will take us to the revelations of further knowledge and my first thanks therefore is to dr david frawley pandit vamadeva shastri on behalf of sherbindo society and all of us here it has been a most wonderful illuminating talk and next it was yogini shambhavi ji who started by sharing a very beautiful experience that she has had before coming here see being in the ashram circle i have grown up listening to the balcony darshan of the mother but this is the first time i'm hearing the window darshan of sherbindo and it was a most touching most profound experience which she decided to share with us and thank you yogini shambhavi ji for sharing this beautiful sweet experience with us all we had dr alok pande here to share some of his insights of integral yoga and in his beautiful talk he started with the precarious position of the human soul it is like our being able to glimpse the sky but never being able to reach out and grasp the sky it is there we can sight it but yet it seems to be out of reach and how the evolution has been a journey of the soul's attempt to perhaps reach out to the sky and bring it down to where it is so that it can live the sky here on this earth he also said in that attempt how the journey has progressed see what was in the vedas was a beautiful truth brought down into our realm by the great vedic rishis and there have been subsequent attempts to synthesize into our lives and it had happened in the tantra where tantra took the application of it the realization of these truths into even places or at times where we would never imagine to be at such a place in such a time and there was the attempt of the gita to bring this light into even the battlefield where a ghoram karma even the most heinous act the act of murdering people killing people is about to happen and how spirituality was brought into this battlefield and how krishna gave this knowledge through ajna to the entire humanity and through the further evolution finally there has been recently an attempt by several modern rishis to once again get back to the knowledge of the veda which somehow 
got separated from our everyday application. It got relegated into the background. And Sherbindo very forcefully brought back the secret of the Veda in a language which is most modern, English, so that he, in a way, brought that knowledge which was so distant, so separated from us, to our very close proximity, and how he brought about a synthesis which is much needed for the modern times. And in his beautiful talk, Dr. Alok Pandey has said that the key is through the Divine Mother whom Shebendo himself brought forward as the key through which we ourselves can not only glimpse the truth, but the time has come for all of us to taste the truth. And in fact, he invited us not only to taste, but go and plunge ourselves into this truth, which will take us into a beautiful life. I thank Dr. Alok Pandey on behalf of all of us here and also on behalf of Sherbindo Society. I thank everyone of you too for having come here from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Have a good day.